Have you ever wondered where Christmas trees originated from? Who was the first person who decided to bring an evergreen tree into their house and decorate it, put lights on it, display it in front of their windows, put packages underneath it, gifts for family or friends? Well, the original idea for Christmas trees may have had their origins in the ancient celebrations of Saturnalia. The Romans decorated their temples with greenery and candles. Roman soldiers who had conquered the British Isles found Druids who worshipped mistletoe and Saxons who used holly and ivy in religious ceremonies. And all of those different things found their way into Christmas customs. But it's interesting that the first person to have probably lighted a Christmas tree may have been Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation. And he introduced the practice of putting candles on trees to celebrate Christmas. And in doing so, he cited Isaiah chapter 60, verse 13, as a biblical authority for this practice, where it says this, the glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, and the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I shall make the place of my feet glorious. This is the second episode of The Truth About Christmas, and we're going to talk about trees today. That's right, we're going to talk about trees, but not Christmas trees. We're going to talk about family trees. You know, Jesus's ancestry may surprise you a little bit. The genealogy of Jesus Christ includes some names that you might actually be shocked to find in his royal line as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I don't know if you have ever read Matthew's account of the Christmas story, Matthew's gospel, which begins our New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospels, and Matthew records an interesting segment at the beginning of telling the Christmas story. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, it's just a list of names. And I have to be honest and admit that a list of names, genealogies in Scripture, don't actually make for the most stimulating of readings. <laughs> As we preach the Bible, it's often very tempting to skip through sections of Scripture that have a long list of names. But several years ago, my wife April and I attended a concert that was called Behold the Lamb of God. And this concert was a musical journey, if you will, from the beginning of the scriptures, the book of Genesis, and some of the main stories that make up our Old Testament, leading all the way to the book of Matthew, 
which is when the coming of Christ appeared. Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, God, creator, decides to come and live with the people that he created and appear as a human being and be one of us. And that is recorded for us in the New Testament. In Matthew's gospel, he chooses to provide for us and record a listing of names that go all the way back in history, all the way back as far as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon, all the way back to those guys leading up to his birth mother, Mary. And in this musical journey by Andrew Peterson called Behold the Lamb of God, he actually wrote a song that included all of those names. And something it did for me was it brought to life the people that made up the family tree of Jesus Christ. Virtually every name in that list reveals some lesson about God's grace. And together they show clearly how important God's grace was from generation to generation as he nurtured and protected the lineage that he had chosen to give birth to the Messiah, the anointed one, the long-awaited one, God with us. Throughout scripture, there are a lot of genealogies that are included. And whenever scripture includes genealogy, they do that for a reason. Not only do they trace the royal line of Israel, but they also outline God's dealings with his people. And they reveal how God's sovereign hand has ordered human events to fulfill his own purposes, despite all kinds of tremendous obstacles and poor choices by human beings of different nations and different people groups. All of the worst sins and rebellion and anything that mankind could do has never thwarted the plan and the grace of God. The lineage of Jesus went all the way back to David. God's promise was that David's offspring would bring forth the one who would deliver Israel and reign as king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, speaking through the prophet Nathan, God promised David, he said this, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And what this meant was that any claim to the throne of Israel had to demonstrate through genealogy that he had descended from David and was in the line of royalty. And so one of the purposes for genealogies in the Old Testament scripture is to make sure that there is a record, an authoritative record of that lineage for kings. Well, genealogies had other practical uses also in Old Testament history. They were often essential for conducting important business, for example. Laws that governed the buying and selling of property, for instance, were designed to keep internal boundaries intact. 
in that day, land could not be bought and sold across tribal lines. And so a person's genealogy was required just to simply validate a sale of property. And the entire priesthood throughout the Old Testament also depended on genealogies because all of Israel's priests had to be descendants of Levi. And so when the New Testament begins in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four gospels give us the beginning of the New Testament. What we find is in Luke's gospel in particular, in Luke chapter two, you find Joseph and Mary, this young couple who are betrothed to be married, they're going down to a town to be registered according to their own ancestry. And that town that they're going to is the town of Bethlehem, which is their ancestral home. It's where their family lineage is from. Well, in the New Testament, in the books of Matthew and Luke, we find two genealogies that are listed for Jesus. And these are the final two genealogies that you will find in the Bible. Some people will read these genealogies and say, well, these are contradictory. They don't match up. But a closer observation will show you that they're not really contradictory. Matthew's gospel starts with Abraham and follows through the line of David to Jesus via Joseph's family. Well, Luke starts with Jesus and outlines the genealogy of Mary's family back through David and all the way back to Adam, in fact, the first man that was created. And one thing that you'll note is that Matthew doesn't refer to Joseph as Joseph, the father of Jesus, but as Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus. Scripture is very clear that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. God is the one that Jesus calls father, as Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. Because of that, Jesus had no human father naturally. He couldn't be a descendant of David except through his mother. But still, the legal right to rule always came through the father's side. And this was true even in Jesus's case because he was legally Joseph's oldest son. And so in a natural biological way, Joseph was not Jesus's actual father. But for biblical history and genealogy's sake, Jesus was considered legally Joseph's oldest son. And that's why we have two necessary genealogies listed for Jesus. Luke shows us that through Mary, Jesus was a literal blood descendant of David. And Matthew proves that through his adopted father, Joseph, Jesus was legally in that royal line of David. In every way possible, he had the right to rule as king. Well, not only is this a significant fact 
regarding Jesus' genealogy. But another very interesting anomaly is that four women are named in his genealogy. And the reason why this is odd is because a typical Hebrew genealogy actually excluded women. And to find four women's names in a single brief genealogy is actually quite remarkable. I mean, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus was not comprehensive in any way. He was just merely showing the line of descent, not naming each generation of people all the way back from David to Jesus. And so he could have very easily skipped over women as they would always do in Hebrew genealogies. And even more extraordinary about this fact is that none of these four women actually epitomizes the kind of person that you might expect to find in a royal heritage of someone considered the king of kings. What I mean by that is all of them were outcasts. The first one mentioned is a woman named Tamar. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, it says, To Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. What kind of woman was Tamar? Well, if you want to read her story, and you want to read her story in its entirety, just go to Genesis chapter 38, and what you'll find is a very sad tale of incest, prostitution, and deception. Judah had chosen Tamar as a wife for his firstborn son, Ur, and Ur was an evil man. We don't know what he did, but what we know is that God struck him dead for it in Genesis 38, 7. And Ur's brother, Onan, then became Tamar's husband, as the law at that time required. And God struck him dead too, in verse 10. And so Tamar, being very frustrated by her failed relationships and also being childless and unwilling to wait on God's timing for the right husband, Tamar concocted a plan of her own to become pregnant. She dressed up as a prostitute, put a veil over her face, and waited by the road until Judah, her own father-in-law, came along. And not realizing who she was, Judah also committed a very sinful act and slept with his own son's widow. Well, twin sons were conceived through that act of incest, and their names were Perez and Zerah. And Perez, who was born first, carried on the messianic line the genealogy of Jesus. You may not have realized that part of Jesus' ancestry included people who had those kinds of failings. Almost nothing is said about Tamar in the Old Testament. I mean, just that little brief mention in Genesis 38. Maybe that's the reason why Matthew mentions Tamar so prominently in his genealogy. Because maybe Matthew wanted to communicate that if God would continue the line of family to the Messiah through Tamar's offspring, the product of incest and 
fornication and deception, then he surely must be a God of grace who will continue to work in the lives of people who have experienced such horrible things. A second woman that Matthew mentions is Rahab. And the Bible refers to Rahab as Rahab the harlot. And you find that title given to her in the book of Joshua, also the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and the book of James. Rahab itself, the name, means pride or insolence or savagery. Rahab was a Canaanite, and Canaanites were enemies of God's people in the Old Testament. And when we first encounter Rahab in the Bible, she is an idolatrous outcast and a professional prostitute. And her most memorable act in the Bible, what she's famous for, was telling a lie. And Joshua chapter 2 records part of her story. After 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness, the Israelites were finally preparing to enter into the promised land, the land that God had promised them. And Joshua had sent spies to scout out the city of Jericho. And they came upon this woman, Rahab, who hid them in her home. She took them in. Well, when city officials came looking for these men, Rahab actually lied to protect them. Well, knowing that the Israelites would destroy Jericho and everyone in it, she bargained with the spies to save her own family. And they agreed to spare her and her family. And the way that they would know to spare them was to have her hang a cord of scarlet red thread from her window to let the attacking Israelites know which house to skip. And she did that. And the Israelites spared Rahab and her family. And Rahab, after that, abandoned the false gods of the Canaanites. And she became a worshiper of God the Creator. She became not only a convert to the one true God, but also part of the lineage of Jesus. She was the great-great-grandmother of David. A third woman mentioned in Matthew's genealogy is Ruth, the mother of Boaz. It says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. And so just one generation later, there's another woman who is outside of the Jewish family who is in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth was a Gentile, and this Gentile was in the Messianic line of Jesus. Someone outside of the people of God. She was from a tribe of people who were the product of incest. And their very existence was despising to the Jewish people. And yet, Ruth became the wife of Boaz. And like Rahab, she converted to the truth and found grace in the eyes of God. And her great-grandson was David. 
Well, a fourth woman who is indicated in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. She's not mentioned directly, but she's indicated because it says in Matthew 1 verse 6, to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Well, who was it that had been the wife of Uriah? Her name was Bathsheba. And her story isn't a pretty one either. Bathsheba, according to 2 Samuel 11, was up on a rooftop bathing when David, the king, the man after God's own heart, by the way, saw her and he lusted after her. And he had his servants bring her over to him in his palace and he had a secret sexual relationship with her. But it wasn't a secret for very long because what happened was their sexual union ended up producing a child. Well, when David learned that Bathsheba was pregnant, he panicked and he tried to cover up their sin by bringing in her husband, Uriah, to come and sleep with her, and then he would just assume that that child was his. Well, Uriah was an honorable man and did not want to leave the other men of the army out there to fight without him, and so he would not come. And so David, noticing that his attempt to cover up his sin with Bathsheba had failed, decided to commit another heinous sin, and he sent Uriah to the front of the battle lines, knowing that he would be killed. In effect, he had Uriah murdered. And then he took Bathsheba to be his own wife. And their child that was originally conceived by their sin died, but they later had another son, and they named that son Solomon. And Solomon became the next link in the family line, the family, or the next branch, I guess you could say, in the family tree of Jesus. What a genealogy Matthew gives us for Jesus. I mean, it's almost like he's naming people for a hall of shame, not a hall of fame group of people. I mean, you've got people who are products of incredible sin, people who are outcasts, people who don't belong, people who no one really cares about, people who others might look at and say, there is no way anything good could come from them. But you see, that's just the point. The point of this genealogy is to put God on display even more. I mean, how many years now have you heard the story of Jesus and his birth at Christmas? But you never really considered much about the genealogy. Now, the genealogy is important, and and that's why I'm taking an episode of this podcast to explain it, to talk about it. But the genealogy is not what is on display. It's God's grace that is on display in giving us the genealogy. When you see some of these people and you see the things that they went through, the choices that they made, and you realize this is the line of people that God chose to come to earth through. When he looks back at his family tree, those are the broken branches that he sees. And that's because when he came and his name was Jesus, he came to be the friend of sinners. 
Jesus himself said, I did not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners. I've come to live among sinful men and women. And when he did, he experienced what you experience. He was tempted in every way that we are tempted, yet he was completely without sin. And yet he took upon himself the punishment for our sins and also all the sins of those people back through his family line. That's the grace of God. And here's the best part. The same grace that was evident in the genealogy of Jesus is active today. And the same Jesus is saving people from their sins today. No sin no matter how bad you think it might be, puts you beyond the reach of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm incredibly encouraged that Jesus' family tree has a lot of knots and broken branches, and it's pretty ugly. And Jesus covers all of our family trees with his grace. May that be a truth that you cling to this Christmas. God bless you and Merry Christmas.